welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we will be covering a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. And welcome back to season three. In fact, we are recording in person in a studio. It's amazing. Yeah, We've done so this in ages. If you can hear a difference in audio quality, it's because we've got these crisp mics going on. Yeah, it should be better. It should be better. And it's great to not have latency. Like all of that crap is gone. Mm. Anyway, this is episode three, Level Up. Last episode, we discussed the positives and negatives of all of the announcements and promises from COP26 with Claire Potter. Be sure to check out any of those that take your fancy after this. Uh, so yeah, this is going to be a slightly more laid back episode. Obviously, um, we just had a big old interview with Claire. So this is going to be just a chat about video game design and kind of where it came from, where it's going. And Cotton Eye Joe. And Cotton Eye Joe. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, we both play plenty of I certainly have played quite a lot of video games in the past two years. Thanks, oh, COVID. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Definitely got plenty to talk about on that side of things. Yeah, COVID has definitely the inc- increased the amount. However, I got to say, now that I'm working a lot, I have not really touched any of my consoles, etc. For a while, I took my Switch with me to London like a weekend ago, thinking I'd play on the train, and I ended up just sketching and working the entire journey. I was like, oh, I'm so productive, so productive. I Look know, right? Um, you know, I'm still playing plenty of video games. I built myself a gaming PC during the uh, past year Ooh. which is great loving that was that a fun build to do it was i'd never built a pc before but it was it was a bit stressful but and took me a little while but nice got the rgb lighting in it oh very nice very nice got the gamer set up anyway so to get started um just you know some basic video game facts uh we, we will talk about the the other bits in a bit because i've always found it really interesting that you either have people who play loads and loads of games or people who recognize like one or two or people who just never did Mm. And, you know, I was in the never did category for so much of my life. I want to say up until I was about 14. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't, because of that fundamental switch I had then, I'm like, how do people go their entire childhood without just like ever playing any games? Uh, yeah, I can't comment. I definitely played games. I had Game Boys and then I had uh, a PlayStation 2, which was great. And then, yeah, I got an Xbox. And a Wii, of course, got to have the Wii. Got to have the Wii. Play, playing Mario, Super Mario Galaxy before I went to school. Um, yeah. yeah, my parents always had a rule where I couldn't have a device if it was, um, like, only for gaming. So the idea was that, like, you know, they'd get me, like, a decent computer because you can do other things on it too. But, like, mm-hmm. the idea of a PlayStation or an Xbox was an absolute no-no because it was a gaming-only device. Uh, and they didn't see the value in that, I suppose. Uh, but look, I mean, joke's on them. I have a Switch now. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> it's your own life now. Haha, <laughs> they've been owned. Anyway, uh, so yeah, as of uh, 2015, this is a study that you linked in, but 155 million Americans play video games. Yeah, I was surprised by that statistic. because you a think, huge number. What's the population of the US? I've, I've put it as roughly half the population it's of that. 330 it's 330-ish It's 330 nowadays. Yeah, well, I mean, this like is that. a 2015 study anyway. But you think that you've got that age range. A lot of the older generations don't play video games at all because they didn't have them when they were growing up, so it's not a thing they do. So that's a lot. Like, that must be the majority of people who grew up when video games are a thing, playing oh, yeah. games. Um, and the average age of a game, according to that study, is 35 as well, which might surprise some people. Now, that doesn't surprise me, but I can totally see why it would because I think a lot of people just see them as a thing for kids. Mm. 
Um, and especially Nintendo is a really interesting one there because within like gamer communities, everyone sees Nintendo as the people who make the games for kids and, oh, their games aren't real games. You know, the, it, it's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on. I think the whole thing's practically stupid, but, you know, it goes mm. on. Um, but funnily enough, Nintendo's main user base is over the age of 32. Yeah, it's an odd one. I know, I mean, games like Smash Brothers and those sort mm. of fighting games, there, there are quite a lot of high appeal games for the older older generations yeah but even you know even even on the ones that look like they appeal to younger people it's really interesting that like the 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 like nine to twelve age group if you compare like nintendo to sony you would think nintendo has a bigger market share and they absolutely don't are they not no they really don't the 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 younger age market share is almost exclusively playstation or like kind of like ipad games Mm. and then the market share of over 18s is overwhelmingly nintendo overwhelmingly nintendo that is mad it is surprising but if you think about how many people bought the switch to play animal crossing over lockdown that's true most of those people were uni students and older (laughs) yeah animal crossing went massive i haven't played it myself i've not either but yeah i keep wanting to and then i just play minecraft instead (laughs) i guess games like pokemon and stuff as well they've been going for a long time and they have a very dedicated fan base don't they so yeah it was the kids who grew up on pokemon who are now still playing it in fact there's a new pokemon game coming out in about two days uh, or two days from recording not two days from publication and you know my housemate james has already like pre-ordered both of them pre-downloaded both of them so the second midnight hits uh tomorrow Mm. night you know he'll be playing them Anyway, yeah, uh, average age is 35, and 44% of gamers are women. Yeah, which again probably surprises quite a lot of people. It's generally been seen as quite a male hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I play quite a lot of online games, and I tend to avoid voice chat because it's a pain, and people are just rude and obnoxious on there. I just chat with my own mates whilst we play and just mute everything else. But um, the odd times you do see female gamers on there you do sometimes get some people that just don't know how to speak to women online <laughs> you get a lot of and people yeah you, yeah you can't be surprised that they they avoid those sort of games but um no it's 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 definitely an in- increase and it's good to see because games are great they have a lot of benefits oh yeah um i actually i'm just gonna skip a little bit further down the document Go ahead. about about these sort of things because of the, the power of video games basically i was looking up and yeah, well, they are genuinely used for medicinal and therapeutic purposes nowadays. Obviously, it's, I, I don't know necessarily which games they pick. It probably depends on the person and what they like and maybe what problems they're, they're going through. Yeah, but, what they're needing to solve, essentially. Yeah, but I was reading a, a sort of a, if it was a report sort of summary, and, and they were talking about in there how even if having, like actually being able to prescribe video games is, isn't the right way to go for a, an individual having someone that they can talk to who also plays video games it means that they instantly have something that they can connect with the mm. sort of therapist which is another bonus um to it which is really interesting i didn't really think about it like that yeah that's um, really interesting but yeah prescribed video games is a thing i've never i've never thought about that but there's i mean obviously there's a lot of social power um a lot of people who have like you know who are quite introverted or might have some forms of anxiety may use gaming as a form of socialization essentially Mm. especially online and i know quite a lot of people who have learned english or have learned foreign languages mostly from playing games online in those communities and from watching film and tv 
from those mm. places. So it's, it's, I, I know a lot of, um, not a lot, but like a few people who are Spanish speaking who speak really, really good English, like fluent English, and they haven't really learned it in school. They've learned it through playing online games and through watching English TV. It's amazing what you can connect with online. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I've known, known loads of guys um, and girls online from playing video games over the years, but when, when COVID hit and I was back home, I was sort of playing most evenings. And, you know, we, we all were because we didn't have much else to do after uni or work or whatever. And so now I've got some really good mates that are in Sweden, for example, and I know them really well. I chat to them most evenings and they, they have really good English as well, half because I think EU teaching of English is better than the UK's teaching of other foreign yes, languages. But we can, that's, a, that's another topic. Um, but also, yeah, from watching movies and TV and playing video games, they have really improved their English because they use it just on a day-to-day basis nowadays. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, that was one of the other power of video games things that notes that I made about social because especially over COVID, I definitely felt this. I actually wrote a blog post about this a while back, um, how I was feeling a little bit at the time, like at the start of 2020, I'd left my gaming PC at home when I came back to uni because I was like, oh, I need to focus on my work and to try and socialize and go to more events and stuff like that. And then COVID happened, I went home and I, I don't know, I just, it just something changed in that process because suddenly online gaming was my social life. Yeah, I think there's 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 an element of it being a social thing that people don't think about as much. You know, mm-hmm. they 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 very much treat it as a entertainment pastime, and it it is that too. But obviously, it's it's a social thing too. And I think the power of that for people who are either you know are unable to, or you know, it doesn't even have to be because you aren't able to, or have anxiety, or don't want to. It can literally just be another form of hanging out with people. Yeah, and of course, you know, there is always going to be the risks of people online being not who they say they are, but like that's well less than everyone makes it out to be. Yeah. And you just have to be sensible about it. Yeah. Um, one of my best mates I met online originally. And when we first met up in person, cause it turned out we lived like 20 minutes from each other, which is, you know, that's incredible coincidence as it is. Um, but when we first met up, it was me and one of my schoolmates and he met up with us with one of his schoolmates. So we had the two of us, you know, it was, you had backup. You had backup, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I've I've met a few people, but like never, you know, never from nearby at all. So I've I've got a good a good friend who lives in New York, and like that's pretty far. Yeah, that's pretty from, far. You know, even though I live all across different places, that's pretty far. But you know, we've met up a couple of times, and we we'd met up in New York when I visited once, and then the second time we saw each other, he was in London with his sister, and I actually spent like I stayed with them in their Airbnb hmm. for a couple of nights. So like a hundred percent, he could have killed me in my sleep if he wanted to, um, <laughs> but you know, he didn't. And that was very nice. You're still here today. And I'm still here today. And actually someone else I met online now attends this very university. That's pretty cool. So we've seen each other a couple of times, which is quite fun. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let us go back on track and we're going to talk about game design. Cause after all, this is a design podcast. Mm. Um, we probably should do that, shouldn't we? Yeah, so game design is basically split roughly into programming, art, and design. It's the three different categories. Obviously, there's also writing, and there's also huge amount of quality assurance and testing, and there's the people who build the engine before the game is even made. There's, there's, there's much more than this, but on the basic level, it's those three. So, you know, you did a lot of this research. How would you introduce them and their differences? So, basically... Yeah, I mean, you've, as you said, you've sort of introduced them as they are, and they kind of are self-explanatory. Um, 
programming is probably the kind of nerdy bit that people stereotypically think of with game design. It's the actual writing of the code, which to anybody that doesn't know computer language is a completely foreign language. I mean, I look at it and I, I know how it vaguely works, but I have no idea what it's talking about um, when I see those sort of things. But that's that's literally making the game work. It's stuff like programming it so pressing the forward key makes your player's character move forward. Or it's stuff like um, creating a script so that when you shoot an arrow, it actually moves like an arrow would in real life. It has the sort of the mathematical equations, I guess, within the code um, to make it fly and arc and stop based on different things and fall um, yeah, based and on it, gravity. And it's worth saying, like, so game engines, because there's an entire different side of that, which is, you know, the basic ones are like Unity or Unreal, and they're built by companies that you then license in your game to essentially use a pre-built environment that has all of the physics and all of the scale and basic things like walking. But then you're, you're programming in, obviously, all the animations you want, all the characters you want. Um, and, like, yeah, they might have the basics of, like, an arrow flying. But say you want your arrow to be, you know, sparkly or whatever, suddenly you're not just, like, pressing the sparkle button. You're <laughs> actually going in the code and programming exactly how you want the little particles or bits or whatever to fly off of it. So it quite clearly, everyone sees it in a very visual way, but it actually isn't. Yeah, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, you're basically making a screen play a video in a way, but it's just a completely interactive video. So something needs to be happening in the background that's making that video appear correctly. Yeah, it's and that's constant rendering, isn't it? Yeah, constant rendering, which is why gaming can require a lot of intense hardware, especially if it's high graphics and there's a lot going on. The computer needs to be rendering all of that in real time. Yeah. Um, so then the next part of the... Um, video game pie is the art team um, which is basically everything you see so it's the characters designs the environments the animations menus 3d models all of that everything that you see on screen has to be you know designed drawn Drawn, essentially Um, yeah and it just depends that could be where you have different art styles coming in um, which could tie into how much programming time they've got like you it takes a lot longer to make a really high res game than to make a sort of low poly game but they both their own unique art styles um and yeah just like tv and movies that sort of all starts with concept art in literally the most traditional forms so with your pen and paper um and then moving into digital mediums like 2d stuff um and then taking into 3d modeling software to build out that little dragon or whatever it is you're making yeah absolutely and they're, they're just you know they're creating those 3d models and then they rig them which is mm. essentially giving them joints and giving them bones um, we don't we don't like boneless characters, and then based on that, you know, you can start to do some basic animation. But obviously, with every frame, you still have to go in and fix the little details on those joints because just because the arm bends doesn't mean that you know texture stretches or whatever it is. So the the amount of work that goes into the tiniest little details, and that's kind of why people will often use an engine, or at least they'll build an engine. So you know, some of the popular franchises of games, for example. Uh, the franchise that includes like GTA and Red Dead Redemption, all of the Rockstar open world games basically run off of the same um, engine. So they've programmed once a animation system, a basic visual system, and then instead of having to rewrite all of that and spend hours and hours and hours, they can essentially just change how it looks, change how it works, and change, you know, make it like cars and turn them into horses or whatever, right? mm yeah, I mean, the engine is the very basic base 
kind of canvas, I guess. Yeah, the engine is the operating system if your game was a computer, essentially. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's what everything links back through. Um, it, it is very important. And it's why there's a lot of games where they're like, they try and upgrade an engine. And upgrading an engine is basically making an entire new game because you have to remake everything to mm. go through that engine. Um, so yeah, the, the art teams, they get all that sort of interesting stuff made. And then as you said, yeah, they add the, the bones the bones to it, which is then is what allows it to be animated. So you can move those things and that stretches, as you said, stretches around the 3D model and moves it to try and make it make it realistic. Yeah. Or not realistic if that's what they're going for. It's that it's it is an art form really. Making video games. You can basically create whatever fantasy world you want. Mm, absolutely. And then there's the design team. And they just kind of pull everything together. Yeah, sort of. What I gathered from my uh, my research is that, yeah, they're kind of the glue of the team. Um, they bring the art and the programming together. So they'd be in charge of the story, the level design, um, game balance, which if you're not a gamer, you might not know what that term means. It's literally how even a game is. So if you're making a, a competitive sort of game where maybe one person's racing along one thing and the other player's racing along something else, it's even if those two sort of tracks are different, in their own ways, it's balancing it so that, you know, it's a competitive game and it's based on skill. It's those sort of things. Like, it's the little minutiae of it. It's equalizing stuff, and it's basically making sure that, like, chance or um, random number generators aren't necessarily affecting one's experience. Yeah. It's quite a complex, and that can take ages, and that falls into quality assurance and uh, testing, endless, endless testing, mm -hmm. which can go on for ages and ages and ages. You can have, you know, big teams that might have thousands and thousands of developers and artists, and you can also have a team of like 20 or 30 people, and they just have a different workflow, but you can both create a game of equal amazing quality. Yeah, there's plenty of games. We can go on to some examples in a bit of games like that that have come from very small teams. I mean, the first one that comes to my mind is Among Us, which is absolutely huge. It's basically just a mobile game that just blew up where it's... Um, you're all your little, little astronauts on a spaceship, one person's the imposter murderer, and they go around and have to try and kill people and then, and then talk, talk, talk their way out of it, basically. Yeah. And that game was made by, I think, a team of three people. Yeah. When it blew up, they then hired a sort of community manager, and they might have had some more people in there now. But, you know, that game is massive. It is. And huge. it was made and by a tiny company. Also, uh, Hades. So Hades won Game of the Year two years ago. Yes, uh, and so. that's a team of about 10. Yep. I want to say. Yeah, Hollow Knight's another one that I was playing we will talk about because I love the art style of it. Um, again, that's made by a really small team and it won some awards. So, like, it's perfectly doable. Yeah. Um, obviously, those sort of games are a bit more... They're, I wonder, to be fair, they're very clever in the way they've done it because they've picked art styles which aren't as complicated. So Hollow Knight, for example, is a 2D platformer, so it's flat images, but it looks really deep because they've kind of layered the images the backgrounds around. Mm. Um, but obviously that takes a lot less than making a really sort of photorealistic RPG. 3D experience 3D in particular, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the basic workflow for that would be, so between those teams, uh, essentially, you know, you'd obviously you'd start with writers um, creating yeah. whatever the game is going to be. Coming up with the ideas. The ideas and not necessarily scripting like dialogue lines at that stage, just, you know, basic story. Uh, programmers have to kind of, you know, do their initial script of what happens and just very basic mechanics. And then the designers essentially use that and they use the engine to physically place materials and blocks and, you know, build out essentially what it's going to be. Mm. But instead of it being like 
pretty and refined it's like this will be a tree and it's just like a kind of tree shaped square yeah um this will be a building and they kind of give it a bit of detail like we want the door there we want that there because obviously all of those are interactable elements and then the artists are the ones that go in and place the art they align the art they do all the lighting uh because obviously lighting is insane if you've if you've ever as a designer i don't know if you've ever done a sun study george uh, I don't believe I have actually, no. Something I did recently for work where essentially we were looking at a piece of sculpture and we wanted to analyze how it looked under all the different hours of daylight. And this is like built into SketchUp and other softwares where you can essentially model the shadows based on different hours of the day. And it's just an incredible amount of work just to know that the shadow doesn't look inappropriate at that time or whatever, right? But essentially that, it's lighting, but it's all artificial. And then it's a question of, well, how realistic do you make it? And to what extent do you go? Yeah, I mean, with lighting, there is... To be, to be fair, the, the best way to show how much impact lighting makes is to look at the ray tracing technology that's been coming out in the past few years. Oh, yeah. From um, NVIDIA especially. And... They made some ray tracing versions of like old games, like the I think they made some from like not quite the original Doom, but obviously the like the three D level ones, not the sort of flat two D looking ones. Oh yeah. Um, and they made it's basically they just ported the entire game over, so it's still just the very basic textures and blocks that are quite low quality. And then they put real time ray tracing, which um, to explain, I haven't explained that, have I? Um, to explain, ray, ray tracing is it's a technology which allows a computer to basically simulate light in a way that's realistic. So it puts a light source in there, um, and then it can take, okay, that's where the light would go, that's how it would bounce, that's how it would refract off of this surface. It's really clever, and it makes lighting look extremely realistic. It adds um, reflection. That's the big thing, really. Yeah, because the usually, Because usually lighting, you know, you can have a light, and you can have a, an object, a block or whatever, and it will put the most light on the side closest and it diffuses it. That's a very simple technology. Mm. But ray tracing is, for example, if you look at a window in a game and you see the reflection of your character and it's not just like a pre-generated reflection, it's based on the lighting conditions, it's based on everything. And that's where ray tracing comes in. And essentially it's already very resource intensive, but if there's any reflective surfaces, it just becomes tenfold that. Yeah, and if you add in things like fire and those sort of things, it's... Anything that's moving, yeah. Yeah, it's... As fire is a very dynamic light source, but it adds a lot of atmosphere to these sort of games. But yeah, if you look at those sort of um, games that they've released, these old games <clears> with that technology in, included, and the the visual difference is stunning from that, and that's just just from lighting. Um, so yeah, lighting is very important to these. And then obviously they've got to refine the game loads, so that's why it takes a long time. They can build the level, but then they have to keep on play testing it, making sure that the character model doesn't just get stuck walking into a invisible wall somewhere yeah and i think it is worth um putting a disclaimer here that if you've ever considered going into uh the games industry as a tester because you think you just get to play games all day long <laughs> don't do that it, it it may be you know it may look on paper as oh you get to try these unreleased games and just play them and that's definitely how it's portrayed in film um however usually it'll be oh we just added this new building walk into every wall 50 times Yep, And you just spend your entire day like walking, walking back, walking forward, walking back. And I mean, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, and then it's like, okay, you've done all that. Now I want you to do all of that again, but whilst also jumping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or do that all while holding this item. Yeah. You know, and there will just be every single possible uh, variety of ways to do it. Uh, but yeah, that, that's that's a kind of quick insight into the way game development just kind of tends to work on a basic level. But on on a broader scope, I think there's two styles of gaming mm. that are worth worth comparing. Yeah, this this is quite an interesting one. I actually did a, did a load of research on this in first year um, for a sort of essay project we had to do, mm. and it's the difference between East games and West games. Um, now that basically comes down to Japanese designed games and American designed games, because that's the sort of the main focuses of the industry on those sides of the uh, the planet. Yeah, it's it's worth disclaiming again. Um, obviously, there are games that come from other countries, mm. uh, but all of the major huge budget companies uh, are essentially Japan or America at this point. Pretty much. The UK does have a growing scene. Um, but the, the main thing with this is that these are where they started out mostly. So they've, yeah. they sort of developed the different styles because video games became a thing and it was Japan and America that basically led the charge on them. But they did it at the same time, so they very much developed their own styles in doing it. It wasn't mm-hmm. sort of America did it and then it passed over to there and they did their own interpretation of it. They Literally, they did it at the same time, so it wasn't... Yeah, it wasn't... Just... Yeah, they weren't inspired from each other. They developed differently at the same time. And America was like Atari, for example, very much focused on like the arcade experience and then taking that to the home. Whereas Nintendo, at least, you know, has been a toy company since 1889. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> think Nintendo's a new, you know, like everyone's like, oh, the Wii. No, I mean, they did loads of stuff before the Wii. Um, not to mention that they were doing cards and dice and little board games since you know the 1880s which is insane and obviously their their big focus when they went to gaming was oh let you know home home devices they never had an arcade push whereas mm. atari was entirely arcade based and a lot of the other early american companies were entirely arcade focused and what it was first was moving american arcade games into american homes yeah essentially that was what it what it what it became and as they developed they really they really focused on a sort of expression of the, the local culture um, around those sort of things. Um, one of a good, a good way of looking at it is that I found was Japanese games um, are often focused around teams. So you often play, if you're playing a Japanese game, particularly the Japanese role-playing games, JRPGs, um, like Final Fantasy, you have a big team of characters that all have their very special abilities and the player sort of controls all of them and they're often going up against these sort of god, godly monster-like figures um, for those sort of saving the world moments, which really comes back to Japan's sort of teamwork culture. They might have very much have a culture of, you know, working together and working as a team. And you flip that over to America, and a lot of the popular games in America, you play as a sort of solo protagonist um, in this story. Often They're often first-person person as well which is sort of like looking through their eyes rather than looking at it from a wider perspective and they're a hero yeah yeah and they become a hero and that's it's that sort of lone 
It was often um, a sort of grizzled old war veteran because American very much has that sort of culture and pride in the American military industrial complex has been a part of our media. And that does extend to games. Obviously we see it in films and TV all the time, Mm. but that extends to games. Yeah. So I I found that really interesting. And you don't, you kind of notice those differences, but you don't really necessarily think about it. Obviously there's plenty of inspiration that comes from either side nowadays, but just from the sort of base level thing, you know, the, the top releases in Western cultures are like the new Call of Duty every year. Whereas mm. in in Japan, that's not so big. But the top release would be games like Monster Hunt or something like that, where it's yeah, you know, playing against these massive monsters or Final Fantasy games and the, those sort of things. And I think it's that that's when it's really interesting to then look at Nintendo because Nintendo is very much a Japanese company. Like everything they do is in Japan, and a lot of what they do is inspired by Japanese culture. But at the same time, most of their market is now outside of Japan. Mm. So it, it is, they're, they're a very interesting case study, I think, because, like, for example, the Nintendo stores, like the official places you can walk into, and the Pokemon stores that you can officially walk into, only exist in Japan. I, saying, I didn't even realize there were official yeah. like, Pokemon stores. Only in Japan. <laughs> Occasionally they'll do pop-up ones. So there was a Pokemon pop-up store in London that was there for a week. Mm. And, you know, there were just queues out the door for hours essentially to get in and buy whatever you wanted which you can also get online so everything like they're very very japanese all of their staff are japanese the nintendo of america and nintendo of europe which are both huge huge companies are essentially translation services yeah pretty much i mean even when you watch some of the sort of nintendo i can't remember what they call them now nintendo direct i think it is where they you know they announce games and have trailers and all that sort of stuff you know most of those sort of things you watch them and I mean, this is definitely very, very much coming from a sort of English-speaking perspective. Most of these things, they're done in English, and then you can find other versions. But Nintendo still do everything, even though they're going to a global audience, and they might even be doing it at a time that suits American audiences. Oh, yeah, they're done at about 6 p.m. American yeah. time, which is pretty late for Japan. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, in Japanese and dubbed over. Yeah, exactly. They're doing it at a time that's clearly targeted at America and the West, and they're still doing it in Japanese, which is yeah. great. But it's quite incredible to look at them just because of like, you know, if you see their games and you're like, okay, yeah, that is very clearly, you can see what it's inspired from. Obviously they've, with with Zelda, for example, it is obviously first person, you are Link, you are the hero of Hyrule. Um, and all of that is a lot more Western in nature, right? But all of the elements of the other characters, the elements of design are very clearly Japanese in origin. And the game itself, you know, is voiced and done in Japanese. The English version is not the default, but the overwhelming majority of sales, users, YouTube videos, Twitch streams, etc., are in English. Mm. So it's just kind of, it's, it's very intriguing how they've really stuck to their roots, uh, regardless of that. Which sometimes, you know, for people like me, I'm like, oh, I'd love to work for Nintendo, but then you, you just have to be Japanese, you know, <laughs> unless you want to translate for them, essentially. And then you need to have learned Japanese. Exactly. Which so you have to be a cool language. You have to, I'm, I'm sure it would be, but you know, that's that's unfortunately beyond the the scope of people who want to get into games from the US or the UK. But on that, it's worth addressing some specific. I mean, we talked a lot a lot about games uh, and some specifics here. We've mentioned uh, the Zelda's franchise. We've mentioned Hollow Knight. We've mentioned uh, Hades, which is a fantastic game. I've just started playing that actually. It's um enjoying it a lot incredible uh big recommendation uh we, we we could throw out some recommendations i mean these are all and any any game we mention we're not going to mention bad ones 
No, I mean, we'll leave the uh, the F game off the table. Exactly. I don't like that one. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, did you want to, like, I, know, I, mean, I guess you've kind of listed these down to cover different categories? Yeah, I have. I mean, we can talk about some of these. I think it's just, um, it, it's basically, I wrote these all down to to show how broad video games are nowadays. I'd mm. say they are an art form, um, and I have been very obsessed with Hollow Knight lately. Um, I was telling you that about that beforehand. Um, it came out a few years ago, but I only just started playing it because of a friend's recommendation. But again, it's one of those games where it is art. It is art to me. Like oh, it's yeah. so beautifully drawn. Like everything's hand drawn. It's really charming. Um, it's quite a difficult game, um, and it has this beautiful orchestral score to it. And yeah, and this the, I talked about the two D sort of platformer art style. It uses this technique called parallax, which is basically where you have different layers of art. Um, on different planes and they move at different speeds to make it feel like, you know, when you look out the car window, for example, you, if you're um, in a car, I don't know how else you'd look out a car window, but when you're driving <laughs> um, and the hedge that's right up close to the road is moving really fast, it's a blur, but that mountain or hill in the distance is very stable. It's that sort of basically. Yeah. And it's and, a really and cool the, technique. That effect came from uh, old style first original animations by Disney and stuff where they would have the camera mounted up at the top and lots of sheets of glass with different bits on them. Mm. So the top layer would be the character, then it would be the trees, then it would be the ground, and and essentially they'd slide the glass all at different speeds, and that's how they created the parallax effect back then. And we now see it today in games, and it, it gives that realism, it gives that depth even in a 2D platform, essentially. Yeah, and actually, whilst we're on that, the fun, another fun fact about parallax, it's um, also the technique which astronomers astronomers use to uh, measure the distance between stars. Really? Yeah. It's because it has to be done on a very large scale. But yeah, if they get um, satellites or telescopes, so say you've got a telescope in, on, a, on a mountain in Chile, when it's in the morning, you're on one side of the planet, the next morning you're on the other side of the planet. Or if it's even further away, in autumn, you're on one side of the sun, and the spring, you're on the other side of the sun. And they can use that to measure the difference in um, movement of stars and work wow. out exactly how far away they are. That's, so yeah, that's a fun fact about parallax. That's very you. cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, so games use all these fun techniques. Um, and there's so many different types, as I said. The other one I wanted to kind of talk about is one that I definitely spent way too long on when I was growing up, which was League of Legends, which is a big um, MOBA game. And there's plenty I of I thought others. we said we weren't going to mention bad games. It's it's a good game. It's just got a bad community. Um, that's my, my take on it anyway. Uh, but I've, it's it's just an interesting um, game like like that. It's so complicated. If anybody who doesn't play it watches um, like the world leagues that they do of it, it won't make any sense. Yeah, it's I don't confusing. understand it at all. Um, and Dota Two is a very similar game. That's the same. Counter Strike is a shooting shooter game, which is a lot more simple to understand. But all of these games have massive esports. Um, followings which win ridiculous amounts of money um i think some of the sort of dota 2 league of legends prize pools have been in like the 20 millions yeah 20 million dollars just for winning a tournament like it's it's a it's a real real thing now and they get a lot of viewership yeah so um that's another way that video games are changing the way we live our lives the way people look at sports for sure <laughs> the we, yeah the way we look at sports definitely yeah, other ones worth mentioning are just any any of the like kind of huge, not necessarily open world, but like in-depth cinematic blockbuster type games. So mm. Cyberpunk, Skyrim, The Witcher series, Destiny, they all have just these like incredibly complex, really deep stories that are essentially 
they're essentially interactive movies at that point. You know, yeah. they'll have cutscenes that are rendered in, you know, cinematic quality as if it's part of a film and then it cuts back into your gameplay and you progress. Mm. And essentially it's a film, but instead of having one ending, it's a film that you play through for up to like 60 hours. Yeah. And then have one of 20 endings, for example. Yeah, it's it is incredible what you can get and it's it's a totally different way of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um from cinema, but there is a there is a complete overlap. So games like the Dark Pictures anthologies, I believe that's what they're called. Um, they're literally practically movies where you just do little inputs, sort of click button here, click button there. You do a little bit of exploration, and then you have a sort of a I don't know a chase sequence where you oh have like to just, the Telltale games, yeah, a little bit like the Telltale games, which are very much storytelling that you're just sort of interacting with. Um, and then you've got other games like The Last of Us, which again are very sort of almost blockbuster stories that you're just getting to play through. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, that's another avenue. Um, and I think the last one I wanted to mention was these si- really highly accurate simulator games, mm. which are incredible. I mean, Microsoft's Flight Sim, I think it's 10, isn't it, the latest one? Yeah. Um, it's incredible. They've managed to, like, sure, if you fly down low over your house, it's going to be a sort of concrete block because they've not got high right, resolution pictures of everybody's house because that could be uh, an issue Indeed. but um you fly over some you can fly over some places all around the globe because basically they've i think they must have used satellites um and google maps those sort of things to render the entire planet yeah they used a combination of um i mean it's microsoft so they use bing maps actually oh of course um, yeah, they would, they? but yeah basically they you know it's, it's satellite imagery for the basic level and then they actually had um, airplanes fly over areas collecting 3D data. Mm. So similarly to how you can go into downtown cities and see like a 3D view of the area, um, they managed to essentially do the same thing. And that's why if you like fly through New York City, you can see everything in full view. But if you fly through your neighborhood, wherever you live, unless you live in the middle of a city, it'll just be a gray blob as it would be on Google Maps essentially. Yeah, but it's incredible the detail they can go to and also have the detail of the planes that they have in there. Oh, yeah. These, obviously, you can't play a load of flight sim and then get into a plane and fly, but you'll definitely be a lot more qualified to some, than someone who hasn't played flight sim because it is pretty close to the real true. way planes work. And, I mean, those kind of games develop such... Uh, close-knit really caring communities i think one of the funny stories that i read not long ago was about a tank um there was a world of tanks but it wasn't world of tanks it was a game like that so Mm. it was everyone you know you drive military tanks and shoot things um and they added a new tank and it was not very accurate Mm. um and people who played the game who were also in the u.s military actually leaked classified documents so that the plans for the tanks could be shared with a game development team so that they could get it right (laughs) Now, if you think about that, right, you you work in high-tech, top, you know, really confidential stuff, military, and you decide to leak the architectural, or not architectural drawings, the engineering drawings of the latest US military tank because the tank game you play didn't quite get it right. That definitely seems like a breach of security. Oh, it 100% is. But it's also like, it's amazing that that's what, you know, these communities care that much that that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is incredible. Um, and then the other the last one I wanted to mention was Assetto Corsa, which is a racing simulator game, which is, I've actually not played it myself, but there's, there's loads of racing simulators. And they're always trying to get 
slightly more accurate than others. But this game properly simulated um, a lot of parts of the car. And I can't remember exactly what part it was, but basically players were complaining at one point about a bug um, in the game where it was something to do with gearing, I think, where if you came out of a corner uh, in a certain gear and you tried to put your foot down whilst you're on like a curb or something like that, sometimes the engine would have a problem and it would like, it, it wouldn't like pull away properly or something like that. And anyway, the players were complaining about this because they were like, this is a bug, this isn't how it should be. And the developers of the game did loads of research into it and even like spoke to, I mean, obviously they're speaking to a lot of actual racing um, car engineers and developers making to make the game as accurate as possible. And it turned out that this problem was a real world problem. It's actually a problem that happened in real cars. Oh, wow. And their engine was so accurate that it simulated that slight problem. As I, I can't remember the exact details of it. It was something really minute, like uh, something in the way that the engine works means that it, it has that problem. That is, that is quite something. Yeah, and these car mechanics are like trying to solve it. And they're, they're probably using the game as a kind of modeling engine to see solutions. That could, yeah, you know, that could I, be I think they honestly do. Yeah. I mean, I watch uh, the F1 nowadays, and I know that, I mean, I don't know that they use the F1 game to do their simulators, but they have simulators. You know, all the F1 drivers practice oh, in, of course. in simulators. That's how they practice. So, you know, these, these games and, and these, these technologies can be extremely accurate. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, I think that kind of brings us to a close. We've covered some of the industry, how it works. We've covered the fact that games are everywhere and a lot more people play them than you think. And we've talked about some of our favorites and kind of some things that stick out about them. So uh, let's close it out there, shall we? Yeah, I think you should. Um, if you have any games that you are a massive fan of, for whatever reason, feel free to point us in the other direction as well. Yeah. We absolutely. always like recommendations. Please, yeah. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and your ferret. Have we done ferrets before? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure ferrets would love video games. I'm sure they would. Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts don't get an algorithm. Um, Yes, we rely on your word of mouth as our listener. Yes, so uh, please follow us on Instagram at assemble.it for a deeper look into the show and our own work, including some behind-the-scenes outtakes, projects, and updates. Once more, remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it among your friends, family, co-workers, and your ferret. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoyles and George Wyeth, and edited by George Wyeth. Music is by Mikey Burtwistle. This is a 7-6 podcasting production.